0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pilgrim Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Designing Chases for Horror. The Benny Evangelist Murders. A Canadian Drinking Toe. And Lady Liberty's Lost Sister. It has come to pass.
1: The new third edition of Unknown Armies is in stores now.
0: Unknown Armies is a modern-day occult role-playing game about broken people who conspire to fix the world.
1: The new edition has a completely new character creation system.
0: Now, more than ever, each character's attributes revolve around their wounded and worsening psychological state.
1: The third edition also has a whole new way for GMs to focus play on the group's communal goal to change the world.
0: And the myriad ways things are likely to go horribly, horribly wrong.
1: Unknown Army's third edition has three core books. Play for players, run for GMs, and reveal the Book of the Weird for everyone.
0: Buy them individually. Or in a deluxe set whose slipcase has a magnetic clasp and unfolds to become a GM screen. Read
1: more at atlas-games.com slash unknownarmies.
0: Or leave immediately for your local game store.
1: Because Unknown Armies is there right now. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And within the gaming hut, we see that the miniatures are strung out along the table, possibly with tiny little matchbox cars, because... We're talking chase rules.
0: And some of those miniatures look more scared than the others.
1: That, well, that's always true. I mean, some of the miniatures look like horrible monsters, and they literally don't look at all scared. And even the right. miniatures of the Grim Paladin or the uh, heroic cleric ass show a tiny bit of hesitation if you gaze into their pewter faces. Do not gaze into their pewter faces. It's not recommended.
0: Y- yes, uh, but better than licking their lead faces like no, we did back in the day. Don't which be doing that. Explains a lot S- about Draganar. Explains Brognars. so much.
1: <laughs> mm, but lead, but we're, man, we're, you we're can't We're already
0: digressing, aren't we? Yes. I, I was having a, song. A, a think the other day. I uh, think that ar- ar- arose somewhat out of the new uh, gumshoe combat system that I'm introducing in uh, the Yellow King role-playing game, now kickstarting. And the idea with that is that actually in the horror genre, the number of times when you see big, huge action sequences of fights like we're used to in our uh, D&D-style fighting where the monsters are there to be uh, uh, hit with things and stabbed and beaten on and have their their stuff uh, gully-jumped away from them, that in horror, uh, when there is an action sequence, an extended sequence that has a lot of attention paid to it, sometimes the entire length of the film basically is a uh, a chase, uh, like the film Don't Breathe, which is the a chase within the confines of a tiny blacked-out uh, house in Detroit, that the uh, running away from the creature in horror or the slasher or whatever is much more part of that genre experience than the fight scene that we've ported over from a more action-oriented genre is. Right. And so uh, that led me to idly uh, think, hey, shouldn't we... Uh, and this is not something I'm doing in Yellow King, uh, <laughs> but in in a game, a, a new horror game, if you're creating it or if you're thinking of doing a radical refit of something like Trail of Cthulhu, at least on an abstract level, should we be paying more attention to running away style chase scenes, the chase scenes when you were the one being chased, uh, as opposed to the action sequence where you were at least as often as not, and probably more often, doing the chasing. Should we have the big extended attention to detail in a crunchy system or pseudo-crunchy system uh, that you would normally devote to combat, but instead devote that to all the little stages and moments of an extended uh sequence of flight? So I assume you're going to agree with me, at least for the purpose of this uh, segment, so that we can <laughs> yes. continue to have
1: one. Never negate. But- it's the key to improv and podcasting.
0: Yes. But if you had the freedom of negate, to negate, would you?
1: I, I think certainly that for a game like Dread or Fear Itself that are meant to model the sort of you're doomed genre of horror uh, that we're talking about with uh, Don't Breathe and with that, um, uh, what was that vampire movie uh, in, that was set in Ireland with the bog vampire that comes after her. That's a great long chase scene as well. Um, but we can all think of a million examples of, of movies that are, that are long chase scenes. And so, since we have it in right. our DNA. And, and
0: in Lovecraft, the, one of the big action sequences right. is, is the, a, the, the chase, chase scene sequence. out of
1: Insmith in uh, yep. Shadow of Insmith. The notion that, you know, you should sort of provide a way of making that as exciting and thrilling and adrenaline-y at the table as it is to watch or read. Is, uh, I think it's a valid one, and I think it's the sort of thing that Gareth should start making notes for for Fear Itself Third Edition.
0: <laughs> yes, and you've now come across one of the uh, the tricks that Robin and, and uh, uh, Ken play, which is when something seems challenging to implement, we just, oh, you know, Gar will do that. Yeah, he's really Look good. At Gar. He's you'll, so you'll good. Be brilliant at that. So let us imagine uh, without the difficulty of then having to write it down and playtest it to make sure it works, <laughs> w- what would Gar do? Yes, what, what would, I, would Gar do? If, if we were Gar here... Look at our, look and at and our Gar bracelet. Searches, uh, Gareth Ryder, uh staff writer at Pellgrin, what would we do to make a set of rules that paid as much attention to running away and escaping alive as a an action-oriented game plays to fighting? So first of all, I guess we need to break down what it is that makes a chase exciting and terrifying in horror. And the main thing is sort of the relentlessness of the, uh, let's call it the creature, it could be a slasher, the relentlessness of the creature and the attempt to get away and the different sort of obstacles that uh, run into your path as you're trying to get away from this inexorably approaching... And the
1: obstacles that you can put in the path of the creature as well, because it's yes. not just on you even if you are a a babysitter or a cheerleader fleeing your your Jason or your uh, Michael Myers you still have ways of sort of attempting to turn the tables you know they they slam doors and they stab them with knitting needles and coat hangers and they uh but it's not so much that that's an attack usually as a attempt to prolong the chase and extend their lead to some imagined place of safety because that of course is the other part of the genre is you're in a chase to nowhere Uh, there is no, you know, safe spot where you can say tag, uh, you're it. There's not a panic room you're trying to get to. Uh, the cops are not actually out there, or if they are, it's even worse than you can imagine. So the goal of the chase is the chase itself, not the destination, which makes me think that you begin by modeling it like a fight. I mean, that you have a role and you, your role and the, and the creature roles and, you are, um, you know, losing some of your lead each time, usually. And every now and again, you can gain lead by really, uh, messing with the creature in some clever way that the. Uh, scenario would provide you with the sort of obstacles that you might have and the pluses or minuses it would give to your role. Like, you have, if you go upstairs, the thing has to slow down to chase you upstairs, but now you're upstairs and you're trapped and you have fewer possibilities. Um, you can dive out a window and take damage, but that extends your lead by a good deal. And there's a bunch of trade-offs that you make tactically in terms of running away in addition to in the same sort of way that you make a tactical trade-off in an F20 game, whether you choose to stay engaged with the guy or get free and maybe take a attack of opportunity to go attack the other guy who's more promisingly hittable.
0: Right. So what I'm starting to see then is a series of stations of the chase where you, um, move a, uh, you're moving along, and if you're lucky enough to get to the next station, then you find a choice. So you get into the uh, kitchen in the old house, and there you see a can of 70s hairspray uh, sitting there and you see an open window so there you go there's a choice do you pick up the can of hairspray and use your lighter to uh, attempt to uh, do the old improvised blowtorch thing at the creature when it comes through the door even though if that fails that means it's closer to you Uh, but uh, if it succeeds you might buy yourself even more time and you have to decide whether to uh set the creature on fire or jump out the window. And let's say you jump out the window and boom, now you've uh, uh, landed wrong and uh, can you find an improvised splint as the uh, uh, creature, which is presumably still sizzling back in the house, uh, what they're doing. So it seems, uh, and I guess that brings us to the next question, which is uh, in combat, typically uh, in a crunchy uh, system, you have a whole bunch of different, uh, capabilities that you've either chosen or not chosen for your character. So, you might select what it is that you're doing based on the character choices that you made when you built the character. So, improvised weapons, if you're better at that, you stay and use the uh, improvised blowtorch. If you are uh, instead have a higher athletics rating, you think you probably have a better chance of getting out that window without turning your ankle. Than you uh, did with the uh, sort of quasi fighty, damagey parts. But even when you're hurting it, as we've indicated already, you aren't doing anything more than slowing it down some. That you can't, that the option of turning around and just wailing on it is probably not going to work because it has you wildly outmatched. Um, What else would you start to build into either the characters or the environment that they're uh, running through to make it feel? like a classic horror chase. I think that you would
1: probably want to provide a, a fairly strong degree of mapped out, at least mentally mapped out space, like in, like in a horror, like in a F20 dungeon fight, you want to know what the exits are. You want to know, is there a, a pool of lava? Is there, you know, whatever other tactical constraints, because so much of this has to be deciding in the moment and moving fast. And so, as opposed to a straight up F20 fight where you're engaging a bunch of different roles in the same environment, you're, you continually are changing environments in a chase. That's what makes it a chase as opposed to a, a fight scene. And so every time you move into a new environment, there has to be an immediate way for the GM to communicate. Okay. There's a window, there's a can of hairspray. There's a bathroom rug. You have to be able to provide details I think you have to be able to edit the surroundings to, uh, you know, say, well, all right, if it's, if there's a closet, or there coat hangers? Yes. Um, if uh, it's a closet is those slat, uh, doors, uh, that I can hide behind and peek out. Yes. Um, you always have to be able to do that and set the terrain because the terrain is so crucial to chasing, even more so than it is in straight up RPG combat, usually.
0: Right. Because in, in a fight, you basically use the map to find a place and get there. And then once you're on the fight, uh, there, you know, there is a map you're looking at if you're using miniatures and Mm -hmm. there might be cool features in the room. But here you're moving through the map uh, because it is a chase. And so you could draw the map in a completely abstracted way, you know, between different choice points and different stations. And just it could be a circle on your notes and then two branches that go off to, you know, uh, the basement door or the door to outside. And then whichever one that is, you know, okay, you go down the basement door and here's the portcullis in the cellar. And here's this choice I have to make down there. Or you could try to get to the car and little notes on, you know, what it is about, you know, why the car won't start this. Um, and you want to find sort of fresh different ways to do. If you do a second one, right? The first one, you can just do all the classic moves. So, you know, what's the problem with, uh, trying to get the car to start? Well, of course. Um, you fumble with the keys, mm-hmm. and a lot of the abilities you have are reflecting your ability as a character to uh, move through panic, right? So right. That, and the um,
1: more adrenaline you build up in the chase, the harder it's going to be to do fine manipulation things like get your keys out or make a cell phone call or whatever.
0: That's right. You uh, you have you go sort of slow and calm and try to move at, a, at the same weirdly leisurely pace that the monster uh, seems to always follow even though you're running at top speed um, because that's a... That's a risk, right? You get further away, but then when you get to the car, you fumble the keys. And one of the keys here, I think, would be to find a system that the GM can run really fast, because although I certainly prefer to run a fast action sequence combat as well, there's plenty of people who play that at a rather leisurely pace, where they're, okay, now I move this guy here, and let me look at all my spells. And and that's fine, because people enjoy having the time to make those decisions.
1: And because in some games that is sort of the main course of the night is that combat and you have exactly. sort of lived for this moment where you get to sort of do all of your cool tactical stuff and you've got your, your daily spell and your cool plus two mace and everything else. And to sort of rush through that is sort of wasting all of the effort that lets you build up this really awesome combat monster guy.
0: Right. And you and you want to make great choices in that situation. Uh, that's also the point. You don't want to be rushed through those choices, but here we have to have a way to, it's not going to feel like a, a horror chase if it's not fast. So we have to make sure that the choices come sort of bing, 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 bing. And I guess that's why we're getting to another uh, challenge in role-playing, is that traditionally a big, long uh, chase sequence is not one that involves six people being chased. It's typically one person alone being chased, or a right. couple of them. And so, uh, once again, we're running up against not only the role-playing assumption that... uh the monsters are there to beat on, but also that there's a whole team of you together. And obviously, the the thing that you would do is uh, you would split up. Yeah. And so, uh, if we're not running this in sort of a a solo mode, a sort of a gumshi one to one sort of situation, and of course, one to one would resolve this very quickly in one challenge.
1: Yeah. Which also, which uh, which sort of vitiates its its point as well. So you'd need to figure out a way to extend this one to one moment if the chase is the whole movie if,
0: if the chase is the thing it would be a series of challenges right yeah so in that case you would have a you know athletics to run away you would have uh you know do you then do you make your architecture push to get through the door do you so you would have a series of of things that would be part of the whole deal but you also uh if most of the night was devoted to that it wouldn't be an investigative game anymore so it would be you know you'd really be bending that system to do something it isn't uh, uh super designed for So, I don't know whether we have created a dynamic that requires a whole different uh, one-to-one style game, or uh, how would we deal with the whole multiple protagonists all running away at once problem?
1: There are some models. uh, your, Your classic Friday the 13th has a bunch of different cheerleaders and whatnot being chased by Jason. So, in theory, you could run it as a series of chases in which uh some of the characters are like well you're going to be chased while the rest of us figure out a way to stop this uh resu- this resurrected camp counselor or whatever and the possibility or the understanding at least in sort of the formalized slasher that there is some way to defeat it whether you do an elaborate Scooby-Doo style trap or you just you know um uh, finally exhaust all of its energy points so much that it can finally be stabbed with a knitting needle or with a kitchen knife however it is that you that you operate that it it becomes a notion of who's who gets sacrificed, who tactically uh runs away. And I think in terms of the game, what you probably want to do in order to make the players have fun is to then let the players take over the secondary supernatural elements of the game. So if there's subsidiary zombies or if there's um uh a a, a ghost bound into the house or something, they can then you know come back as obstacles as opposed to as runners. And so you get that sort of sense of siege for the final girl when she finally has to face the thing down. Uh, that, that might be one way to do it, but it's, it, it requires a very formalist approach to the, to the material that I'm not a thousand percent sure that is good for a generic thing like fear itself would be.
0: Right. And so I guess what we're verging toward is something that works more as a convention game or a one time experience. If you've got multiple people running away, because, you know, as the old saying goes, you don't have to be faster than Shagath. You just have to be faster than the other person running away from the Shoggoth. just Shagath. have to be
1: faster than the Dilettante.
0: Yes. And so uh, as the Shagath starts stops to snack on the Dilettante, you can then run further away and get deeper into the Ice Ruins and try and find a, some sort of an advantage. But as you suggest, there has to be some uh, fun thing to do uh, for the other players and anything that has sort of a classic elimination-style uh, chase to it. And uh, speaking of eliminations, I think we need to uh, eliminate the prospect of rambling on at length by forging uh, through this next exciting commercial message and then into our subsequent segments. I've been covertly mentioning it like crazy these past few months. But now it's time for you to overtly announce... That the Yellow King role-playing game from Pelgrane Press is now on Kickstarter. Based on the influential
1: horror tales of Robert W. Chambers.
0: This latest gumshoe flagship title sends your players on a mind-bending journey through twisted histories and alternate selves. From Paris in 1895 to Europe's shattering 1947 Continental War. To the ruins of the Castaigne regime. To a world like our own. Or nearly so. When I played a section of the Paris sequence, I was the architecture student. Help us add even more content to all four of the core books, which nestle together as a single product in one elegant, not-to-mention-magnetic slipcase.
1: We got chased by a spider statue.
0: Also snap up our gorgeous found-object collage Paris sourcebook, Absinthe in Carcosa. My character drank copiously and engaged in the witticisms of the doomed. And a novel by yours truly.
1: Stretch a goal or two before the king in yellow comes for you. Go to Kickstarter and search Yellow King role-playing game. Or dare to look at the sinister link in the show notes.
0: It's time once more to pick up the distinctive green and somewhat blood-soaked piece of specialty paper stock that is the crime blotter. And uh, this time we're going to pick up a uh, crime from 1929 in Detroit City. And uh, this has been sitting in our uh, list of possible crime blotter segments, and it has uh, uh, puppets, and uh, sort of a, a cult element to it. And, oh, no, some really, really terrible murders, which maybe explains why we don't do crime plotter all that often on the show. Yes.
1: It's, they're awful. <laughs>
0: yes. Uh, but somehow uh, this has popped up on our agenda, I guess, because it, this is sort of horror adjacent.
1: Well, it, it's, uh, it's a cult adjacent. I mean, it's straight up horror. Right. It's yeah. in horror.
0: It's just adjacent to the rest of it. Speaking of starting a completely different topic at the outset <laughs> of a the segment, there are some <laughs> murders that have a horror feel to them and some of them that have a just a true crime feel. to exactly, them. Exactly. Yes. You know, like you're. Your Ed Gein versus your, uh, you know, typical versus, mob hit versus your Stanford White. Yes, <laughs> right. Well, this is in this is closer to to Column A. Yeah, uh, and so uh, without further ado, why don't you start telling us about the Benny Evangelist murders?
1: Okay, this is in Detroit. It is in 1929, uh, July 3rd. Benny Evangelist was uh, originally Benny Evangelista. He was a Italian immigrant, I think, from Naples. His job, or his avocation at least, was running a a sort of fortune-telling faith-healing scam. And he created, at some point in, I think, 25 or 26, he wrote a a book called uh, The Oldest History of the World Discovered by Occult Science. It was going to be four volumes projected. He got one volume done. He would charge uh, ten dollars, up to $10 for private readings. He had a cult around him. Uh, because they had read his book, which is no small task. Well, as,
0: as you and I know, if you want cultists, write a book.
1: <laughs> write a book. And so, he would do faith healing. The newspapers called it voodoo. Reading about it, it does not have any similarity, in my mind, to Afro-Caribbean uh, religious tradition. Except Are you suggesting that,
0: that the newspapers were sort of ginning things up a bit?
1: I think that they might have been. But there was a sort of ongoing fortune teller and voodoo panic in Detroit in the late 20s. And throughout the early 30s, because apparently there was a lot of these sort of faith healer cult groups that sprang up and would uh, apparently try to resolve their turf violently. It being Detroit, (laughs) even in the 20s, Detroit was still Detroit. And and so that that was sort of his setup. And he had made a fair amount of money uh, running this scam. And then is discovered by a guy who had sold him a country uh, place to, to hang out a, a little house on some land in the country comes by the next morning and discovers Benny evangelista and his wife uh, and his five-year-old daughter and his four-year-old daughter and his seven-year-old daughter and his 18 month old son, all dismembered with axes and bludgeoned and, most of the people in that list were beheaded. Some of them were sort of beheaded as if the axe murderer had gotten carried away and frenzied and had not really thought all of this through. And, uh, it was a god awful scene that, uh, even imagining it now is pretty disturbing and imagine seeing it in the 20s. It must have been even worse. This is, as Robin says, why we don't necessarily go into the crime blotter all that much, because it's horrible. And uh, they, uh the police had a fingerprint, but they never found a suspect to match it. There was a number of possibilities they sort of tried to investigate. They tried to pin it on a guy who'd been run over by a train beforehand and was dead at the time. That <laughs> apparently didn't work, even in Detroit. The police said nothing of value was missing, but of course, if he had been planning to uh, pay for his uh, mortgage on this uh, farm property, or a, a, another account says he was going to buy some lumber from a de- demolished building. There would have been some cash in the house. So, not finding a bunch of money maybe means a bunch of money was stolen. But again, it was not the
0: the, the savagery of these murders and the fact that the children are being murdered suggests yes, that it's not about much that. more than like a. Uh,
1: lumber money theft. Exactly. So they attempted to pin it on a couple of guys. They spent some time trying to track down the lumber guys. They never found them. And they eventually had a public funeral for the evangelistas with a, a cortege going down uh, the main street in uh, Detroit's Italian neighborhood in the hopes that someone watching the funeral would give it away, would, would, you know, blench or maybe that the wounds would start bleeding. I don't know what they thought. The old mousetrap. The old mousetrap trick. That, of course, did not work at all. And another faith healer cult figure in the 30s confessed to the crime, but his fingerprints didn't match. Uh, this is a guy who had murdered a different guy. His name was Robert Harris. Uh, he'd murdered a different guy by sacrificing him on the altar that, that he maintained in his own religious order. Um, and he said, no, it was a voluntary sacrifice. It's cool. And the cops were like, so why is there an enormous contusion on his head? And it was like, oh, we had a different argument that involved me hitting him over the head with a, with a yeah. wagon handle. And, uh, then, but he, he'd already said I could stab him on my altar. So it's cool. And they felt that it was not cool. And so while in prison or in jail, rather, I suspect, the police asked him, uh, very politely to confess to the evangelist killing. They perhaps asked him with phone books. That Maybe with phone books, maybe with any number of things. And, uh, he did so, but his fingerprint was not the fingerprint found on the doorframe. So that case sort of fell apart again, even in Detroit. So they never solved the murder. The nature of his shrine caused comment then and now because in his basement, he being a carpenter had built himself uh, what was called the Celestial, uh, Planets, uh, the Great Celestial Planet Exhibition. And it had 10 wax, uh, puppets that, uh, suspended from wires on the ceiling around an enormous lit eye, which was electrically lighted and was an enormous eye sitting in the middle. And these, uh, 10 figures were the 10, uh, celestial, uh, entities. As described in his book, and I can list them now if you want them listed, Robin, because that's the kind of thing I, I do.
0: I'm sure. I'm sure our listeners are like you've mentioned ten puppets. You're going to have to just describe the ten puppets.
1: All right, the ten puppets are the Sun, Domins, Moon, Lunirio, Mars, Eldom, Mercury, Jove, spelled G I O V, about half the time. Other times it's spelled like Jove. Venus and Saturn and that's it. And then each of these has like their enemy among the various other planets. And so it's only thanks to the powers, I guess, of many evangelists that they don't fight all the time. Uh But those are the 10, those are the 10 figures. And uh they sort of show up. There's also sort of a sub order of angels who some of these might have been so like uh uh, good old, um, uh, Eldom is here in the, in the top 10, but there's a bunch of other figures in the sort of pseudo Bible that, uh, that Benny Evangelist wrote. And so maybe some of them weren't those guys. They were Ola or Ambus or, uh, Alton or some of the other, uh, I like the idea that there's a, 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 a demiurge or a, or an Egregor named Alton, by the way. That's kind of neat. Um, he was probably pronounced Alton. Uh, but there you go. And, uh, it, it might have been those, but since there's, uh, it's described as eight or ten, they orbit the sort of central eye sun. I'm going to go on a limb and say it's the, it's the celestial figures that I just listed.
0: So are there photographic images of these that have survived, or do we just have a, uh, a... you can, you can see them online.
1: They're, they are, uh, sort of, they're creepy looking. I don't, I don't think there's any question <laughs> of that. I would not
0: have guessed. If Even they were if going to I didn't, if, if you
1: didn't associate it with a murder house, you would look at those puppets and say, this religion is not for me.
0: You know, I'm going to go to Lynn here and say handmade puppets, uh, unless they're sort of Henson inspired, almost always creepy.
1: Yeah. There's something, maybe they were less creepy in 1929 or, uh, when lit by the comforting beams of the electrical sun eye. But I think they were probably just creepy. And I think the creepiness is part of what he was selling. Um, the, uh, the papers, uh, I think kind of unkindly emphasized the fact that the celestial, uh, uh, exhibition was sort of uh, moth-eaten and run down, that the green cloth on the walls billowed out, as the paper said, to resemble a padded cell, which I think was their way of saying <laughs> what, what, what we just said, I guess, really. But right. uh, I, I, I think that as a professional carpenter, uh, he probably it was probably a little nicer than that.
0: But there's also the indication here that this is this whole sort of weird undercurrent of occult violence in Detroit in the 20s and 30s is uh part of what's going on in the black community and with immigrants and so therefore your respectable establishment uh, uh white people types are going to emphasize uh you know the fact that uh, something below their society that's bubbling up beneath and if, uh they're going to have an opportunity to indicate that it's uh, shabby and squalid of course they are they're, they're going to do that uh before we move on to trying to uh, uh gamify this are there any other uh uh details that you want to bring out I think I see something tantalizing in the notes the clairvoyant prince lazuli tell us about this yes
1: okay so prince lazuli uh was a clairvoyant he was uh the world's mastermind on the vaudeville stage and he uh was named William F. Jones by his uh, mother and father, one assumes, but encountered his powers in 1922. He was part of a love triangle with a different group of weirdos named uh, Adam and Eve, who had a William Tell act where they would shoot... <laughs>
0: Yeah, because when you think Adam and Eve, you think arrows being being shot. That's you the, think arrows the big shooting mythic it, well, symbol in Adam that story. Adam and Eve have an
1: apple. Who do you shoot the head off? See, oh, it all okay, ties right, in. yeah. See? So, it's Adam shooting the apple off of Eve's head. Apparently, Eve and Adam did not get along. Into this comes Prince Lazuli. There's a great deal of, of zaniness that occurs. So he was
0: the serpent in this scenario?
1: He was the serpent in this garden. Uh, they did, in fact, go into Maine to live as naturists garbing themselves with only what they found in the woods, and there are many sensational photos of the modern-day Adam and Eve. Okay, so nature is fetching. to
0: shoot arrows. Okay, I'm starting, starting to get the concept. Okay. Right, okay. And then
1: they were arrested for uh, killing partridges out of season, because apparently it was not illegal just to be weird jerks in Maine in the 1920s, which is good news for your characters, well, at, I suppose.
0: At police then and now, when they find some weirdos they don't like, it's like, what can we find out? What's on the books? Mm. Mm-hmm. Pheasant poaching. Yes, that's what we're charging you with. Pheasant yes. poaching. Get him!
1: And so, good old Prince Lazuli winds tangled up in Adam and Eve's um, uh, divorce case, in which uh, Eve says a lot of very unkind things about Adam, but denies that there was any affair with Prince Lazuli, that he was just a shoulder for her to cry on in this trying time. He is um, uh, brought up Uh, For the magistrate on suspicion of larceny, as well as uh, alienation of a wife's feelings. Then he resurfaces a, a decade later, or part of a decade later, in Detroit, offering to engage in a seance to speak with the ghost of Benny Evangelista to find out who murdered him. And by this time, he has another young lady associated with him, not Eve. But, uh, the princess Lazuli and, uh, she is the spirit medium and he speaks through her. And so she goes into her transom. And, uh, unfortunately, Princess Lazuli does not speak Italian (laughs) and they couldn't convince Benny Evangelista's ghost to speak English. So the case remained unsolved. And even Prince Lazuli.
0: Benny Evangelista in in his. Living life spoke English.
1: Yes. Yes, he did. You quite would well. not think
0: that would be an impediment. You wouldn't think.
1: Weird. So the Lazulais admit that the seance is something of a failure. Prince Lazuli disappears into history during a, a lengthy trial in which Lazuli is arrested for being a pretend fortune teller in Detroit. Because remember, the, they're, they're having all these troubles with fortune tellers and, and voodoo and whatnot, or they right. think they are. And the fortune
0: so, tellers are resolving their disputes through turf
1: warfare. Right. He comes in to um, uh, offer his services to the cops and the ingrates, they arrest him. I do want to also point out that during this citywide crackdown on fortune tellers, they the police are being aided by stage magician, Harry Blackstone. So if you remember... We've talked about sort of our weird sort of stage magician based uh, game that that might happen around this time. I think we had The Vanishing Elephant and things like that. Now we have Harry Blackstone leading the police on a crusade against occultists, fortune tellers, seers, and voodooists in 1929 Detroit. And now is the time when I can reiterate, why make anything up? Why go to that effort when you have all this wonderful stuff? But that, I think, is where... Uh, the, the, the notes of the case mostly give out, although I grant you, I have not read every single word of the Detroit papers and most of it is online somewhere as well as in the PDF of the oldest history of the world, uh, according to occult science, which of course I own because who, who do you think I am?
0: And so if we're trying to turn this into a game, I think the, uh, first thing we do when we fictionalize it is, uh, remove the child murder. I think most groups are going to have a big problem with that yep. and that enables us to take a step back and uh, you know if we change all of the names and uh, alter the uh, the details a little bit we can then examine the question of are the characters the skeptics who are coming in and pro- you know that they are we playing Harry Blackstone and Company um in a uh, effort to clean up this violent war between occultists and fortune tellers or is this as the player would probably prefer, a magical universe where uh, something about those puppets called up something that uh, Evangelista could not uh, put down. And so the question is, what is the supernatural force uh, that uh, was actually responsible for uh, committing these what looks like vicious axe murdering crimes, but in fact it's some sort of uh, creature or force, and then you uh, banish it, and of course you don't go to the cops and say, hey, Case closed. It was this uh, demon from the ninth uh, layer of the underworld. You just uh, you know go about your business as uh, monster busters do.
1: One of the things that was brought up at the time is that this was a black hand killing. That this was you know the Sicilian extortion mafia that worked in Chicago, worked in Detroit, worked well wherever there were Sicilians, pretty much, and they were extorting successful immigrants like Benny Evangelista, who, who didn't care if they made their money from carpentry or or grifting and that the, this they tried to pin it on the black hand. So your characters might be a uh, black hand enforcers who are trying to find the person who did it so that the cops will lay off the black hand and f- find themselves sucked into a world where there are magic deadly summoning puppets. So that can be another thing that you might play. And the reason you don't go to the cops is your black hand enforcers for God's sakes.
0: <laughs> yeah. And so that would be one of those games where it's like, who are we sympathizing with the, uh, the black hand or the uh, the demons from the ninth layer, but
1: it but it can be a but it can be a a fun way to sort of add horror to the horror because you're playing these horrible horrible people and there's something worse, yes. right? That you're you sort of opening up this pit of of awfulness that you had previously suspected you were the lowest people in the world and look at that you found demons.
0: And do you have an opportunity for self sacrificing redemption or uh, are you just going to go back to being a scumbag when it's all over? Right. Uh, well, that's a question that we're going to have to leave uh, for. I guess, the players of this imagined campaign to uh, work out. That'll be their big choice. But our big choice is to push on through, through this upcoming exciting commercial message to the delicious segment waiting on the other side. What happens when your steampunk RPG gets parasites in it? Well, actually, it's
1: a parasitical game system that is added into your steampunk RPG. That sounds fabulous. Where can
0: I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately, or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X.
1: Logically Related, but related by their love of role playing. That's the best of Phoenix volumes one to three. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask
0: for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F E N I X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like Ludovic Chabant, Dreaming Johnny, Rob Toll, Jesse Low, and Roger Edge.
1: Oh, what do I hear? The clink of glasses, the tinkle of ice, the spritz from the uh, seltzer gun. Are we entering? Could we dare to enter the bar adjacent to the food hut? Oh, belly us up to the bar and give us a human toe. What are you trying to pull, Robin? <laughs>
0: what the what? Yes, the horror continues. The horror has infested the food hut, Or we have had a, a terrible theft in a, a, a Canadian institution, uh, this is one of these little bits of uh, uh, hokum folklore that uh, most Canadians know about, is that uh, all the way up uh, in the Yukon in Dawson City, there's a, uh, a drinking establishment called the Downtown Hotel, which gives you a guess as to how many hotels there were in Dawson City at some point. There must have been the Uptown Hotel and then the Downtown Hotel. Well,
1: at one point, at one point, Dawson City was a giant boom town, right? It was probably had a million hotels or bars at least.
0: Uh, One one would think. But at some point, all you had to say was, yeah, the downtown hotel. Right. And so, uh, or maybe, you know, downtown meant swanky by uh, Gold Rush standards. Exactly. They were dreaming of Yonge Street in Toronto. (laughs) Yonge
1: Street. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I mispronounce? Yeah. Is it Toronto? Is that did, did I get that right?
0: Yes, you did mispronounce Toronto. And this is something that I think most people think has something to do with uh, the poems of Robert W. Service. Mm-hmm. Some, it might have been something about somebody's toe being shot off and put in, an, in alcohol. But in fact, this long-standing Canadian tradition goes all the way back to sometime in the 70s. Like <laughs> most bar and drinking-related lore, it is somewhat blurry. <laughs> in like detail. you do. But allegedly, sometimes in, in the 70s, Someone came across a toe that had been pickled by its former owner back in the 20s. And, of course, how one determines the exact provenance of a pickled toe, better left up to legend, frankly. And so, anyway, the the downtown hotel uh, famously purveys the sour toe cocktail in which this blackened pickled toe, uh, the toenail still on it, floats. And uh, if you actually let... The uh, you order the the cocktail is basically you know whiskey plus toe so that's yeah. the ingredients and if you it's, successfully it's touch the toe to your lips uh, which uh, why would you not that's why you're doing it the uh, downtown hotel gives you a uh, certificate uh, that you can take back to your friends and uh, show them that you've done this exciting thing to do in Dawson City and uh, as game players we might think what are the rules what if someone tries to minimax this for example by swallowing the toe. Uh, is this the original toe? No, it is toe number eight, uh, in a long it, line of of toes. Uh, toes notoriously hard to source. Uh, Although it was it's,
1: easier in the Yukon than other places.
0: You're at, yes, there's something very Yukon-y
1: about losing a toe. I mean, you you have frostbite like all over the place, don't you? In, even even in the modern Yukon, aren't you out bravely battling elements and building igloos and
0: whatnot? Well, this most recently stolen toe was removed surgically oh. and and sold. Or granted surgically, it barely counts as a toe. It
1: it should either fall off as a result of frostbite or have been bitten off in a bar fight. That's how you get a toe,
0: right? But if you're the bartender (laughs) at the downtown hotel, you take what toes you can get. You take what you can get. That's why they resent the fact that someone just has stolen the toe again. In 2013, someone drank the toe. They swallowed it. At that time, there was a posted fine for uh, drinking the toe of five hundred dollars. And they've since raised that to $2,500 because what's 500 bucks if you want to be able to tell people that you ate somebody's toe? And so just now, this new toe, toe number eight, I think uh, toe number eight has a slouch hat and a scarf and, uh, you know, was was Tom Baker and now it's this other toe. So this is their eighth toe, just recently pickled and just recently put into service and was uh, stolen by a patron. So uh that brings us into the whole realm of you know this is not the only cheesy sort horrible of horrible thing that can of, happen guess, sort in of a bar. Hazing style thing. <laughs> yes. that, yeah. This is the sort of thing where you uh, demonstrate your fortitude by going through a rigmarole at a, at a bar. Uh I think you have a a rigmarole to tell us about from Highgate called right. swearing on the horn. Yeah, this is an a
1: ancient rigmarole that goes back um at the very least, it goes back because there is a documented source of it in 1742. So it goes back a documented rigmarole. People. Documented rigmarole because in uh in London you document your rigmarole. That's what you do. You don't send it up to the Yukon to freeze its toe off. And the the shtick basically is that you would arrive at the bar, and then that bar would say, "Oh, you you can't have a drink. You're." you haven't sworn on the horns. And the horns would be these giant cattle horns or deer horns that they had on the bar because Highgate used to be on the big cattle drive road into the Smithfield market. And so they would say, oh, my goodness, what do I do? And, of course, what swearing on the horns means is you have to buy a bunch of drinks for everybody. And there was an oath to be sworn that basically means nothing. And an example is <laughs> uh, you must not eat brown bread while you can eat white unless you like brown bread best. You must not drink small beer when you can get strong, unless you like small beer best. You These must. These are weak yeses nice. Exactly. Uh, you must not kiss the maid while you can kiss the mistress, unless you like the maid best. But if you are going to lose a good chance, you can kiss anybody. Uh, and that's the oaths that you would swear, which basically in, inculcate you into, on the one hand, the fellowship of good sports will not be beaten and robbed for your belongings, or B into an ancient Dionysian society of misrule in which all standards are cast aside in the name of uh, the, the horned God, but probably the first one. But it was <laughs> it was basically sort of an initiatory thing, much like when you cross the line on a cruise ship and they uh, have Father Poseidon uh, dress you up as a girl and, and pour liquor all over you, that kind of thing. And so it, it acted as an initiatory experience for people who are new to the bars in Highgate. And it lasted basically as long as the cattle drives did, which meant it was gone by 1870 and then had to be revived by uh, folklorists who, of course, ruin all the fun by being serious.
0: Right. And uh, a, a similar thing survives to this day as uh, not just uh, documented, but uh, corny and commercialized rigmarole in, uh, in Newfoundland. Uh, if you know any residents of Newfoundland, when you're visiting there, they'll say, don't do this. It's stupid. But uh, as a tourist, you can go to a number of different bars and get screeched in. And uh, Screech refers to uh, what used to be the homemade uh, moonshine of Newfoundland, uh, but is now marketed as it's just a, a type of rum that you can legally buy and won't blind you. And so you go to the bar, and each one of them has their own uh, different sort of little script that they play out, and you uh, kiss a cod as part of the process of drinking the Screech, and there's some call and response and back and forth. And uh, a cod is a little hard to come by these days, so you may be... Uh, Expected to uh, kiss some other uh, fish that you don't want to kiss particularly. But again, you get your, uh, these days, you get your selfie taken with the cod, and there you've gone through an initiation ritual and have, uh, uh, as someone who has come from away, as they say uh, over there, you are now uh, considered enough part of the gang in order to keep drinking at the bar. And I see appearing now like magic in the Google Doc is we've referred to this before. Uh, but it uh, turns out that this Epical Chicago spirit Is also part of this tradition uh, Jepsen's Malort, Ken?
1: Yes, uh, which was made in the 1930s By Carl Jepsen, who was an immigrant A Swedish immigrant to Chicago In Sweden, there is a drink called Besk, which is branvin which is basically Rotgut brandy, or Sort of um, uh, high-proof Grappa, that you blend with Wormwood, because it didn't taste horrible Enough yet <laughs>
0: It wasn't enough of a demonstration
1: of personal fortitude. And you put wormwood in it, and that kills your stomach worms, apparently. Jepsen then alchemically made the worst possible wormwood beverage that you can make with (laughs) Jepsen's Malort and began selling it to one assumes easily bullied Swedes in Chicago, but then eventually it became a something of a rite of passage in Chicago bars. That if you have not drunk a shot of Malort in Chicago, you are weak. You are an outsider. Uh, someone said, Uh, They they, they interviewed um, a a James Beard award-winning bartender, and he says, in Chicago, it's the greatest city in the world, but you have to earn living there by living through the winters. Drinking Malort is like concentrated Chicago winter. Other people (laughs) describe it as being uh, knifed in a prison shower or being necklaced. I personally consider it a blend of rancid grapefruit and feet. (laughs) <laughs> but other people the 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 wormwood will just rip off the whole bit of your taste buds and all you get is the burning and the monstrous uh tire fire death in your mouth it's not good it's it's not good things um there even the bottle so the actual label of Jepson's Malort uh used to say before i think that the they they were um uh, drag kicking and screaming into the modern era uh it used to say this most first time drinkers of Jepson Malort reject our liquor Its strong, sharp taste is not for everyone. Our liquor is rugged and unrelenting, even brutal to the palate. During almost 60 years of American (laughs) distribution, we found only one out of 49 men will drink Jepson Malort. During the lifetime of our founder, Carl Jepsen was apt to say, My Malort is produced for that unique group of drinkers who disdain light flavor. It is not possible to forget our two-fisted liquor. The taste (laughs) lingers and lasts seemingly forever. The first shot is hard to swallow. Persevere. Make it past two shock glasses, and with the third, you could be ours forever. (laughs) In the grave. And if that doesn't count as a true threat under the letter of the law, I don't know what does. But it is a, it's a legend in Chicago. It is a, it is a, a a sort of a a rite of passage, force of being. It's a, it's a best in the rest type of thing. And it's completely unjustifiable because it's just the vilest, monstrous beverage ever. It, it should be run out of town on a rail in any legitimate uh, establishment. But it is what it is. And that's what we do. And
0: and if you, are lucky enough, uh, as you and I are, to travel around the world to different gaming conventions. Uh, often the people who run those conventions have that same sense of civic or local pride about yes. some other horrible <laughs> oh God. Uh, food is item this, or Is drink. this where we're
1: going to talk about Salmiakikosu?
0: I believe we are, yes. Yes. As you know in Finland, Robin. As we know in Finland. Now, I was afraid, actually, that this thing they were talking about the whole time was going to be lutefisk, that it was going to be uh, rancid fermented fish. And so to find out that it was merely a very salty licorice liqueur, uh, which, because I had to leave early, I just, they had me swig it uh, out of the uh, trunk of a car where I was then whisked to the uh, airport in Helsinki. You know, if, if I had a dental emergency and needed to clean my gums, but also taste, all sorts at the same time that's mm-hmm. you know but that was not nearly as horrible as i was thinking it was going to be no it's uh, it's
1: not something you would drink on purpose i grant you but right. it's just salt and licorice turned up to 11 is really all it is and it's still unpleasant i mean i don't want to get a lot of emails in from finn saying that their beverage is that saying that we think their beverage is good we don't we we don't like it but it's <laughs> not it's not just a, a a a basically a murder attempt the way that malort is and there's no toes in it I I did have it uh, offered to me mixed with uh, Captain Morgan. And I can tell you that that is the secret key to make it truly vile. So,
0: (laughs) (laughs) yes, Uh, sometimes it's not good to adulterate the thing that is already terrible.
1: And I was told I was told by the Finns and they may have been lying, but the story's too good that until they saw the Simpsons episode Flaming Mo, they had not known about cocktails. And so they have this horrible licorice candy that they thought we can put this in vodka and make a cocktail and they would put it in vodka and then they would put it in the dryer. And that would be what did the mixing and the blending is that it would bounce around in the dryer and then you would take it out of the dryer and you would drink it.
0: So So the claim here is that Finland didn't have cocktails until the Simpsons. Until the Simpsons. That is the claim that I was told by Finns,
1: not by Swedes making fun of Finns, by actual Finns. Now they may have been having me on, They may have been making fun of the American. Ho, ho, they'll believe anything. But now, now your national reputation has been produced over the airwaves, all because you told me a silly story about The Simpsons.
0: Uh, Well, that is an all, uh, as you know, in Finland, uh, to to beat all, as you know, in Finland. Um, So I guess very briefly, uh, this can inspire uh, something in your own game, where, of course, your uh, player characters are very often travelers headed to a new, weird place, and they uh, show up at the weird hunting lodge, and are told well, there's a tradition here for uh for visitors we have the we have the screaming elk, and uh if you want to fit in around here, if you want anybody to talk to you or answering your questions, well, just uh let me serve you all up a bit of the screaming elk, and here's the poem we're going to read, and here's the elk head that you're going to kiss and uh I think that would be a, a delightful stage setter to find out uh which players are game. And which players are uh, reflexively cautious because uh, we all know that uh, if that's the first scene in a game, there might just be some consequences to uh, to drinking the screaming out.
1: And in a, in a in a magical game, there might actually be consequences. It might be that the initiatory potion you know reverses your gender, or it um, makes you grow horns, or some other magical effect, and it'll wear off when you get sober again.
0: Right, or but, just a random cursed potion. Yeah. That they bought uh, that they, from the, that they from, got the from the hobgoblins. To, right? Right, and there's some, and you know, we all know that a cursed potion you can't get rid of it except by tricking somebody into drinking it. Yeah. So
1: that, or they, or they make like a like a suicide punch, like they pour all the cursed potions into a big barrel. Yes. And then you you they tap it and you drink it and you have no idea what's going to come out the other end.
0: It is like the drinks that I made the mistake of having at the Hard Rock Cafe the first time. That Indianapolis hosted Gen Con, The Hard Rock uh served D twenties. Were you there for that, Ken? Yeah,
1: I was there. It was at the Ram. It wasn't at the Hard Rock, or was it at the? It was.
0: A, it was. I'm pretty sure it was the Hard Rock. Right. I was...
1: But I had a D twenty as 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 did you, and as did Christian Moore. We were all there.
0: Yes, and of course the D twenty is. They had a chart of 20 alcohols. They rolled the D20 twice and mixed them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, along with Jepson's malort, don't do that either. Don't Don't have a D20. Do
1: neither of those things.
0: Yes. (laughs) But we we were so pleased to be in a place that was welcoming us that we had no idea that we were being malorted. That that we were
1: being asked to swear to the horns. Anyway,
0: I think it's time that we uh, staggered. Having uh, kissed the cod and, and uh, sworn to the horns and touched uh, the toe, uh, touched the toe to our lips onto uh, our final segment. The skies are dim always since the Maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In
1: John Scott Tynes' Puppetland, you rise up against the savagery of punch... The Maker Killer.
0: You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets.
1: Seek the gorgeous new hardback edition at your nearest retailer of beautiful yet sinister role-playing games. Featuring full-color paintings from Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales from...
0: Kenneth Hite. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready to play. Ready for you! The clocking of time gears and the whirring of Chronotons tell us that once more we're standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated uses to send our intrepid Chrono agent back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And... This time, uh, as is sometimes the case, we're here to get Ken's after action report on something he has already done, in which he will explain uh, why he done it, how he done it, and what the consequences uh, would have been had he not done it. And uh, the question here is, why did you stop Frederick Auguste Bartholdi from uh, constructing a, uh, a planned, or I wasn't really planned, but just sort of mooted, uh, giant female statue carrying a lamp at the Suez Canal. Uh, Bartoldi, of course, uh, was later known for building a not-at-all-related giant uh, lady statue with a lamp, uh, which we now know as the Statue of Liberty. But uh, as I came across this while researching the uh, Bella scene for uh, the Paris segment of the Yellow King role-playing game, I thought... Hmm, when we get to the point when I'm promoting Yellow King, we need to hear the story of of why can you nose your time nose into this story. So, do you want to start off with, uh, are there any particularly interesting uh, Bartholdi connections that uh, caught your eye when uh, you were initially uh, given this time assignment?
1: All right, the first thing that, that catches one eye, with anyone in 19th century France, you check to see if they're a Freemason, and yes... Another thing that Bartoldi has is that he goes to Egypt, which is another one of your triggers for uh, weirdness happening. He goes with the painter Jean-Léon Jérôme, who uh, would eventually become uh, not one of just one of the leading lights of symbolism, but also one of the leading lights of Orientalism in painting and sort of provides the palette for the dreamlands in a lot of ways. One imagining Lovecraft having seen Jérôme uh, reproductions at home in uh, art books. At any rate, uh, Bartoldi goes to Egypt. He sees the colossal statues at Abu Simbel in 1855 and 1856. He is smitten by the notion of colossal statues. In 1869, as the Suez Canal is being completed by a French uh, consortium, the question of what will the lighthouse at Port Said on the Mediterranean end of the canal uh, be? And he thought it would be great if it were a giant statue Allah the Colossus of Rhodes, of a woman holding a torch. Now, this begins by blending your seven wonders of the ancient world a little unforgivably, because the lighthouse and the Colossus are two different wonders, but let's let it pass. So he uh, was going to take a, a peasant, an Egyptian peasant, a falah, a female peasant. She was holding a torch, and it was going to be called Egypt Brings Light to Asia. And it was a celebration of the Khedive of Egypt, Ismail Pasha, having forbidden slavery in Egypt, and so the notion is that Egypt would be the progressive beacon for all the other Asian countries to follow, because the canal was going to open up the road from Egypt to Asia, so that was the thematic hook on which he hung this uh, statue idea. Now, according to the cover story that is brooded about, a couple of things got in the way of this. One, uh, no one had any money for giant statues. Uh, Two, Kanaev Ismail Pasha had not actually technically freed all the slaves. He'd sort of said he was going to and then got distracted by being a Kadive and probably by the fact that all the slave owners were saying, but we own slaves and we want to keep owning slaves and you're just one Kadive. So there was a lot of back and forth uh, and he was, uh, as I mentioned, uh, a Khedive so he sort of was a free spending fellow, uh, which is why when they came to tot up all the accounts for the Suez Canal, it turned out that the Kedives half was mired in debt. The British swooped in and bought it, and that's how the British took over Egypt was by the British buying up all the Khedive's debt. But in all of that, no one is going to put a French statue on the Port Said lighthouse, and they're certainly not going to spend money for a big, exciting female statue.
0: Right. Or that's how the story goes that's now. That's how the story goes now. Surely you had to arrange things for that to unfold like that.
1: Well, it's one of those things where it, be given that All I have to do is encourage the Kadive to spend more money. This was not the hardest task I've ever had as a time guy. It's pretty simple to get a feckless autocrat to blow the statue budget on ladies and uh, liquor. And indeed, that's pretty much what he did blow it all on. So, bankrupting the Godive, super easy to do, and don't regret it for a second, because... Well,
0: apparently not easy enough, because in the previous timeline, this statue, this lighthouse existed. Right.
1: So. You well, know, I mean, again, Egypt is super don't rich. don't sell yourself short, I mean, yeah, all no, I'm I, I, I earned all that overtime that I put in for. Trust me. But the trouble is, if you put a large statue of an unveiled woman on the Suez Canal, guess what happens to it? That's right it gets blown up.
0: Just like the, the actual Colossus Rhodes. something <laughs> yes. bad happened. Well, that was at least an
1: earthquake. That's what did yeah. that. But in this case, it would be the uh, uh, German bombs in World War Two. It would be uh the Ottomans in World War I. It would be the um, uh, free Egypt terrorists in the 20s and 30s. It would be a misaimed British bomb during the Suez uh, crisis of 1956. And it would be the Muslim Brotherhood during the spate of uh anti-tourist terrorism in the 80s and 90s. That statue gets blown up nine ways from Sunday. I eventually decided we're just, it's not in the cards. We can't you just can't have nice things if you put them at the entrance of the Suez Canal. And,
0: and presumably there's a, a big loss of life each time. Oh, yeah. No, it's it, it, it's terrible. It, it's just awful. And also,
1: the statue gets knocked down. So, you don't even have a statue to say, well, at least it still shines through that loss of life, a la St. Paul's in the Blitz. No, it, it, it gets blown up. So, it's, it's a it's a terrible thing. And it's it, it's sort of a magnet for people with grudges. Um, I didn't even want to see what happened if it survived into the, tw- into the 20th century, into the 21st century. So just forget it. Just pack it in. The Statue of Liberty is lovely. I'm glad that we have it.
0: Now, in that other timeline, was there a Statue of Liberty? Well, there was a big military
1: prison, which is kind of the same thing, but not. No, in, the, in the other timeline, there was a, uh, suggestion for a monument of freedom and democracy for the United States, but it wasn't a, a big, glorious woman. It was a obelisk. With um, uh, a uh, big light at the top, sort of like a giant Washington's Monument, which is cool, but was, is not nearly as neat as the Statue of Liberty.
0: Right, and perhaps a little saurani. A
1: little saurani, yes, and also just I think less uh, cool all the way around. I mean, again, I'm not saying that the the, the great Eiffel Obelisk was not great; it was, but. Yeah. It was. I we we traded up. Let's right. just put it that way.
0: Yeah, and a, uh, a monument to feminine power rather than a, a giant Axis Mundi rather ex- than a ex- big old phallus. Exactly right.
1: America's. We got plenty of phalluses. We need a a, a nice lady with a torch to remind us uh, to be good uh, foreigners. Uh,
0: well, I'm I'm glad you did that. And so, are there any other uh, side discoveries you made, or is this basically? Uh... Another job well done in the time stream.
1: I mean, it's kind of one and done. Um I mean, you discover an awful lot when you party with a Kadive for a year straight, I'll tell you that. But it's mostly you discover horrible things about yourself, not really anything that anyone else can enjoy. I will say that uh, the premiere of Aida at the opening of the Suez Canal, which did not happen in our version of history, did happen in the version where they were dedicating the statue. And that was great. That was crazy. Uh, Verdi was was lit. It was, it was amazing.
0: Well, I guess it's a shame to lose a, a great uh, opera performance, but those are ephemeral, and we still have a Aida to listen to here. And so on that uh, note about notes, it is time for us to once again head on out uh, of this monumental podcast and anticipate that next week uh, one uh, just as uh, bronze and magnificent will appear in its place. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors... Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Fagelm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And pro software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges.
1: Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash canonrobin.
0: Put your hand inside the puppet head alongside such patrons as... Joe Webb. Modern Myths. Pink Jenkins. Richard August. And Richard Ruane. Snag Ken Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise... At tpublic.com slash user slash KenRobin. New designs include, okay, okay, I carved the yellow sign into one lousy potato. And Cat Hamlet Half-Elf Robot. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.